Welcome back to another episode of Make and Multiply, a podcast for the people of Emmaus Road Church. This is one of our Hear and Obey episodes where we are talking about the text that was just preached on Sunday, which was Matthew 3, verses 3 through 17. And we are starting our Advent series here, uh, end of November, going into December. So this is week one of Advent. I'm Ryan Chase, one of the pastors at Emmaus Road Church, and I'm joined today by Matt Groon and Mark Christensen. Matt, you preached this text, so I'm sure you've got some thoughts. <laughs> There's always way more that goes into sermon preparation that doesn't even make it into a sermon, so probably lots of thoughts there, and Mark, excited to hear um, kind of how God was speaking to you through this text. Um, let me read the text and then maybe just make a comment about this Advent series. Matt set that up well yesterday, and then we can uh, jump into this passage. So Matthew 3, 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray that as we engage with it, think about it, talk about it, that you would cause your word to dwell richly in us, that it would produce in us all that you intend to accomplish by it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So like I said, this is our the beginning of our Advent series, which we're calling This Is My Son. That comes from that phrase there in verse 17, this is my beloved son. And we're going to be working through several passages, like Matt, you said in the your introduction yesterday, uh, texts in Scripture where the Father directly addresses the Son. This is one of those where a voice uh, sounds forth from heavens. The heavens are opened, and God makes this pronouncement to and about His Son. Uh, This coming Sunday, I'll be preaching from Psalm 2, verse 4, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Um, A couple others from the Psalms where God addresses, you know, as one of the kings in the Psalms, but we we see those as prophetic um, passages referring to ultimately the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and Hebrews 1 really catalogs several of those. Hebrews 1 lines up those passages and says, to whom has God ever spoken in this way, except to Jesus Christ, Mm. the Son of God? These are the things the Father says about the Son. So even though the texts aren't specifically related to the birth of Christ, which is where we think Christmas, Jesus as a baby, um, Christmas is a reminder that the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. And as the Son of God, these passages really, uh, I think, will help us reflect on, meditate on what that means. Who who is the Son? What roles does He play? What does the Father say about Him? So really, it culminates, um, we're going to end in 1 John chapter 5, which speaks of the Father's witness or the Father's testimony concerning His Son, that everyone who believes in that Son has life. And so the fact that God the Father bears witness about His own Son is is incredibly significant, mm-hmm. um, should get our attention. Lots of witnesses God has provided, including His own voice sounding forth yeah. about His Son. So that's where we're at this Advent. And here, today, we're in Matthew 3. So your thoughts and observations, where we always begin, what, 
What do you notice? What stands out to you in this text? Hmm. Mark? <laughs> I have thoughts, but they're excessive. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think definitely you kind of highlighted the book of Matthew as it's the Jewish gospel. Um, and we see significantly that Jesus is the climax of the history of Israel um, here in this gospel. And so um, love this text and definitely how it how it lands in verse 17. So um, was it excited to see how uh, you were going to preach this text? Mm-hmm. But yeah, this being the Jewish gospel, Jesus being the fulfillment of really God's plan for Israel. The climax there. Yeah, that that stood out yesterday when you kind of drew those parallels in the beginning of Matthew, um, how Matthew presents Jesus and his life and how it matches up with events in Israel's own history. Mm -hmm. Like Israel goes down to Exodus, and then God says, out of Egypt I called my son. So Jesus... It's crazy when you think about, like, th- there's no way that he could have manipulated this about himself as a child, but right. his parents flee to Egypt because Herod's seeking to kill him. So he comes out of Egypt, he comes back. Um, and then even how you highlighted the, you know, he goes through the, the waters of baptism and straight into the desert wilderness temptation, just like Israel through the waters of the Red Sea into the desert mm-hmm. for 40 years. Jesus was in the desert 40 days. Th- those parallels, especially the fact that we're just, you know, right. we were in Exodus last week. It was run right. back to Exodus in the new year. So, um, yeah, that that stands out even more, those those parallels. Yeah. And I think the aim of <clears throat> of that all, and, you know, trying to convey this is, is a tricky task of highlighting mm-hmm. all those, because they really are like cool, nuanced yeah. features of biblical theology that, um, I think are important in our operating and our for our edification is for us to see that God is the same throughout all of it and that he has been moving all the pieces to bring about. But the main point is it's all bringing about this event now, mm. the coming of the son. Um, all the Old Testament is preparing the way for this um, for this son. And I think it, you know, it's the three points that I highlighted. It, it really is, I think this text is, you know, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. We, it's, there's no Greek word for it in the text, but this is one of the clearest pictures of the Trinitarian image yeah. being played out. So that, you know, we have to, that has to be Matthew's point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so why is he portraying it in the way that he portrays it? And really what is happening by the way that it's the fact that Jesus is being introduced as his own character mm. um, on his own volition moving now on his own will, not just the subject of, you know, distant stories of here's how, you know, the prologue's over, chapter one begins. Um, he is in center stage, and the, the father's comment about him is the climax of the text, right? It's what, mm. this is my beloved son, uh, something that didn't make make it in, um, was John Newton commented on this passage, and he highlights the um, in the Greek, it's emphatic when God says, "This is my beloved. This is my beloved Son." All of those words, and you guys know this, have the, the article in front of it, so it's it's um, it's really emphatic. Mm. He's saying, "This is my Son." To distinguish him from all others, mm. anybody else around there, this is mine, and he's beloved. You um, could have translated it, "This is that Son, that beloved Son of mine." This mm. this is him. He belongs to me, mm. and. Uh, and it's it's meant to communicate the uniqueness of Christ. Yeah. He is not us. He is unique. Mm. He is um, the image of the Father. Whatever all what the New Testament will 
what the, the apostles and Paul will talk about yeah. who he is. That's him. Yeah. Uh, and then here's a quote that I left out, uh, but I think this this was informative to me because as you read, as you think about the Trinity, right, even as we discuss it now, it can be like, wait a minute. <laughs> How does this all work? And Newton says this, There are mysteries in this subject, the Trinity, which cannot be truly understood by anyone who are not taught of God and cannot be fully comprehended by even the most exalted creatures. For none knoweth the Son but the Father. Matthew 11, 27. And this is, this is the sentence. Enough, however, is revealed for faith to build and feed upon, enough to point him out to sinners as the ground of their hope and the object of their supreme love, trust, and adoration. Mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, why do we look at a text like this at Christmas? When, mm-hmm. You know, because it's putting Jesus out as uh, the object of our faith and the object of our love, and then to hear the Father say the same. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I think this text is so powerful for Christmas. Yeah. yeah. And you know, even as you remind us the structure very clearly in the text, the, each person of the Trinity at work, Jesus, the Son of God, coming to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness, as he says to John, the Spirit descending, heaven opened up. I thought that was so helpful the way you just landed on that and, and helped us try to just in, imagine what, <laughs> what in the world does that mean, that the, whatever curtain veil there is between heaven and earth, the spiritual and the, and the physical, that's opened up mm. and the spirit descends. Yeah. Um, and then the Father speaking. I think it's easy to think about Christmas um, and, and forget about that Trinitarian yeah. lens. Each person of the Trinity is mm. at work, even in you know the, the, the Christmas story. Mm-hmm. Um, the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary. Yeah. Um, the Father sending His Son, mm-hmm. the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, willingly taking on human flesh. So you know, Jesus is the Son, but the Father and the Spirit are at work yeah. as well. The doctrine of inseparable operation, that mm-hmm. the Trinity is always operating, operating together. Yes, they're distinct. They've got, you know, there's mm-hmm. there's distinctions to be made, and they are operating differently, mm-hmm. but they are operating together. together. Yeah. And that, Always. that, that, that quote from Ryle, JC Ryle, when I first read that and it was like an obscure footnote in one of the commentaries, but it just, Oh my gosh, it landed on me when mm. he says it, at the beginning of man or at the beginning of the creation, you know, the Trinity says, let us make man. Mm-hmm. And it seems like here at the opening of the gospel, the Trinity says, let us together save Amen. man. Yeah. Which is so helpful. It's powerful. I had a family member who texted me yesterday and they're asking about, because I told them we were going through an Advent series, and they said, oh, what Christmas text did you guys preach from? And I said, well, it preached from Matthew 3, Jesus' baptism. <laughs> and uh, I feel like sometimes people say, oh, it's Advent, Let's we need to preach a Christmas text. But I think the significance of this, and you brought this out in your sermon yesterday, is this is Jesus, the one who came into the world, who was born as a human mm-hmm. baby to save the world. And so this is the beginning, and really in the end, when God says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Um, he's consenting to stamping, you know, this is the son who's going to save the world. Yeah. And so um, what a text to you yeah. know, look at during Christmas. Yeah. And um, for people to see that there's much more that we can mm-hmm. look at and look back to, like you said yesterday, remember and celebrate yeah. during this season. Yeah, even those words... Um, This is necessary to fulfill Mm -hmm. all righteousness. Uh, Jesus came as a baby, but not to remain 
a mm, baby. Right. He, he came right. to grow up into a man, and as a man, he had a mission, and he fulfilled that mission. And so I, th- I think it helps us reflect on Christmas, the meaning of Christmas, to give attention to what did he come to do? Mm-hmm. What was the mission that he came to complete and accomplish? Yeah, and for, you know, point this out for Matthew, it, you know, when he says, so to fulfill all righteousness, um, if, you know, if we have in mind, you know, we're gospel-centered people, we love Romans, we love the book, we love mm-hmm. Paul, we love talking about justification by faith alone, all those things, if we have that lens and we just look at what Matthew means by righteousness there, it can, you know, that can... Uh, truncate in some ways what Christ is doing. Like it's mm-hmm. all yeah, his life isn't all that important. It's really just his death and resurrection we're mm-hmm. focusing on. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about Christmas, yeah, it's his birth. But let's get to the cross, um, which is true, right? And it's no less than that. Yeah, but not downplaying that, right? Not downplaying that. But when when Matthew and you know keeping his Jewish audience in mind when he says righteousness, he's talking about this holistic type of life that is devoted to God in all that you do, and not just from the external. Uh, doing because we're told to, which would, which is what he's doing. He's setting himself against the Pharisees right. um, and the rest of the world. Religious exterior. Right. An internal faith, an internal uh, devotion and affection for God that then manifests itself in fruit. And mm-hmm. so he, all the weight of the Old Testament representation, right? All the imagery of him representing, him, representing Israel as the son of God, the faithful son of God. It's all to, quote, fulfill and then to ultimately secure righteousness for the new people of God, mm. which is going to include anybody who's united to him by faith, mm. the same faith. Um, and so it's just keeping that, those, you know, if we yeah. just think of it in legalistic, um, you know, declaration of righteousness, that's all true in one sense, but in the sense that Matthew's using it here and what Jesus is communicating is, is this is the beginning. You know, I've already been doing it. You know, it's not like he just started here, yeah. but He's, his public he has ministry. Lived a sinless that's right. life. But now the this baptism is an inauguration of mm. my ministry, of what I'm about to do. Um it's almost like the burning bush moment in Exodus. There's yeah. this moment of all right, God's God's about to act. He mm. is acting in word and in deed, and he's about to go. Yeah. So it's a good launching point. Yeah, that's that's, that's helpful because it, again, centers us on the fact that it, it was necessary for Jesus to live mm. a, a complete life, yeah. not just to drop down and, and die. He can't just mm-hmm. you know, fast forward to that part. He, mm-hmm. he lives an entire life of perfect trust in and obedience to the Father. Mm. Um, so he, he fulfills righteousness in his life makes it clear that he is completely devoted to God in a way that nobody else has ever been. Everybody else has failed. Everybody else is a sinner. And, and John's response is so striking here in this narrative. (laughs) Um, and you mentioned this yesterday, how emphatic his, his denial is no way. Nope. (laughs) I can't, I won't. Um, which, you know, you can read and think, well, why, why did Jesus want to be baptized, need to be baptized. Why, mm-hmm. why was that necessary? And and it helps whenever we're reading a text and we're confused to see a character in the narrative confused as yes. well. To know like, okay, so I'm not crazy. <laughs> John also is going, yeah. wait, what? Right. You? <laughs> no, I'm not right. worthy to baptize you. In fact, what, please, could you baptize me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, there's something here, there's something here too in John's um, you know, response to Jesus' response. Jesus speaks and it says, then he consented. Yeah. So he's realizing that 
Jesus is here to do more than just to, you know, get dunked for a bit, mm-hmm. but something's happening mm-hmm. um, with Jesus asking yeah. to be baptized. It also speaks, I think, Ryan, you're right. It speaks to kind of the, the humanness of the, that we can often set aside the, the stories in these, or the characters in these stories as like, they knew the whole picture like they were God, or they're like us looking back and yeah. reading on it. But because just a few verses later, John's giving almost a prophetic um, explanation of the coming Messiah. Like, I'm baptizing you with water, but soon one will come who will baptize you with fire. And mm-hmm. his axe mm-hmm. is set at the base of the tree. Like, he is prophetically declaring something. Um, you know, it, it feels like, okay, this guy knows more than the rest. But then enter you know, oh gosh, here he comes. <laughs> here, yeah. here comes the one that I was just talking about. And there his winnowing fork is in his hand. And But he's asking to be baptized by me. And just the confusion that's that's there. And, mm. and it, it helps give the, uh, I don't know, if the, the, the realness. The like, okay, these are real people. Yeah. John's a real person. It helps me sympathize with him and be like, okay, when I read a text and I'm confused, well, at least John was confused at some point, yeah. too, so that's helpful. Mm. Yeah. I, I was helped when you pointed out uh, verse 11 there in chapter 3, John describing his own ministry. I baptize you with water for repentance. Mm-hmm. So in his own words, that's what his ministry was, repentance, turning away from sin, turning right. to God. So here comes the sinless Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, mm-hmm. which is John's testimony about Jesus in the gospel of John. Mm-hmm. Um, so no wonder he's, he's confused. This is a baptism of repentance. Mm-hmm. You're the one who <laughs> takes away sin. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, um, it's shocking, it, almost scandalous when, when you think about Jesus identifying with sinners so fully. Yeah. Um, and, and how this points to the cross where he's going to become sin for us. Mm -hmm. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But it's not just at the cross where he says, okay, now here for a moment, I'll briefly identify with sinners. Mm -hmm. No, in in his incarnation, which is again, the the Christmas aspect of this, by, by becoming a man, he is committing himself to an entire life of identifying with us, walking this earth, breathing this air, being surrounded by sinful people, and not just at arm's length, but saying, I'm going to take on the guilt of that yeah. sin myself, and I'm going to identify these are my people, yeah. and I'm going to save them. Yeah, theologians, call, theologians call it the condescension of Christ, mm. and some, I think, more dramatically and more probably poignantly call it the humiliation yeah. of Christ. And all they're talking about is just the fact that he was incarnate, the yeah. fact that he took on our flesh. That's the, the, the stooping down. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then what, but what's at play here in our text is that it's a willful subordination of himself yeah. to take on this flesh, right. to take on the humiliation. It's mm-hmm. not that the father said, all right, go do this, whether you like it or not. The father did say, go do this. And the son and said, willingly, yes, yeah. willingly, I will yeah. take this on. And he takes it on. And then he begins to, because that was a question, you know, when you're, you guys know, when you're preparing a sermon, you're asking questions of the text as honest questions. And one of the honest questions that kept coming up to me is like, why is he here? Mm. Why, is, why did he come here to this place to be baptized? Mm. Because of everything you just said, yeah. he has no need for this. He, is this just ceremonial? Right. In some senses, yes. 
But really what's at play here is, is, is he's beginning, as he already has, but it's, again, more in an mm-hmm. official coronative way, mm-hmm. um, beginning to identify with sinners, mm-hmm. which is, you know, every it, moment of that is good news for you and me. Yeah, yeah. And baptism is a, it, it's a baptism of repentance is turning from sin, certainly, but turning toward God. Mm-hmm. And so for Jesus, you know, the, this represents his, like you were saying, righteousness is holistic, whole person heart and body and action and mind and everything, you know, that mm. this represents his complete devotion yeah. to the Father. Yeah, um, yeah it, it, it's incredible. The condescension of the Son, which is Christmas, that's what it's about. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the fact that, you know, how, how do you measure that condescension, right. that gap that he spans when he goes from infinite glory, uh, existing eternally with the Father and then he takes on humanity. Mm. That, that, that's an infinite chasm. Right. And, and then from there, he's not done. He, he's <laughs> also going to die, and right. not just die any death, but as Paul elaborates in Philippians 2, he's going to die the death of a, a condemned criminal right. on a cross. Um, it's just a, a, a gap, a mm-hmm. chasm uh, that is impossible to wrap yeah. our mm-hmm. minds around. Yeah. I've got a question yes. for either of you. Um, so as we continue, you brought up the focus isn't on necessarily... The baptism, Jesus going into the water and mm-hmm. coming back up out of the water, but it's what happens right after mm-hmm. he was baptized. Is he rises up and the heavens are open, yeah. and then you have the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove. And you brought up the point of like we see throughout the Old Testament the Spirit of God rushing upon a leader mm-hmm. to empower them for what they're called to do. But here you see something different. The Spirit doesn't necessarily rush onto Jesus; it descends, and not just descends, but like a dove. Mm-hmm. So, is there a significance here? Is Jesus just another leader, or is there something special about this leader? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, yeah, I, I think the answer lies in more with him. This Matthew intentionally, and I do think it's intentionally depicting this scene to identify Jesus as the servant in Isaiah 42 uh, and that whole all the servant songs in the second half of Isaiah. So, yeah, this, the Spirit doesn't rush on him like. Uh, or isn't described to be rushed on him as the same of Paul or uh, Saul and David, but it is descending upon him and resting on him. And the uniqueness of it is that it's God Himself who's putting it on Jesus. In all those circumstances before, uh, with Saul and with David, they were anointed by a mediator, and the, and even the, the substance being used is a you know is a mediator. It's mm. a it's an oil representing. And then the spirit comes. This is a one to one to one. It's it's God ripping open heaven, the heaven, the barrier, stepping down, putting the spirit on Jesus, and then speaking. Mm. And you just can't, you know, you can't compare that mm. with. Uh, I, I draw out the key similarities. Uh, I'll read Isaiah forty two again. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nation. So the key similarities, both of them say, behold, there's a divine address. There's beloved, there's a div- divine affection. The spirit, there's a divine direct anointing. And fulfill righteousness, bring forth justice, there's a divine commission. There's a mission that mm. is given by God. So I think Matthew's point is to, with the Jewish audience, to identify that promised Messiah in Isaiah 42 
the one who eventually in Isaiah 52 and 53 is going to die in the place of the people and then therefore make many people righteous. Mm. Um, this is him. This He's is the guy. Beginning his ministry now. That's right. Yeah. yeah. There's, it's not like Jesus didn't have the spirit before this. Right. Right. The spirit wasn't with him, but right. like you said, it's signaling right. now is the time. Yeah. Mm. The spirit, and I think I said this later when talking about the spirit, the spirit is the constant companion of Jesus throughout his whole Life. I mean, he's there at the conception. He's he's the one who's bringing life into the womb. He's there the whole time, and then all of a sudden, it's like a, it's like right now, Charles is the king of England, right? He hasn't been coronated yet, but at his coronation, something unique happens, right? And it's not, you know, magical. It's not voodoo. You know, it's it's, it, but it's something unique. It's like ordination. It's like marriage. It's like these these rituals that we have that. A, there's a status change. He's always been and always continues to be the son before that moment, but in this moment, there is a divine something mm-hmm. happening. Mm-hmm. My thought. That's helpful. And I feel like that, I mean, that comment in verse 17, this is my beloved son, to whom I'm well pleased. That's the approval. Like mm-hmm. the Spirit's not going to leave now mm-hmm. until Jesus, you know, it's not going to leave Christ, but yeah. um, he's come to do a mission and that mission is going to be completed. Yeah. A question I had in that, um, in Matthew, what is it? At the cross, when Jesus cries out, um, which is a whole other thing, um, but then when he dies, the way Matthew describes it is he gives up his spirit. Hmm. And I don't know what that means. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a lowercase s for whatever it, ma- it means. It's, it's the same Greek word as you guys know, but... It, it does the spirit depart from him at mm. that moment. Um, I don't, I haven't thought through mm. the theological <laughs> hoops there, but it is interesting that he uses that same word. But yes, I do think obviously come acts one, when Jesus is now risen, he does say to the apostles, I will send my spirit to you. Mm, yeah. So the spirit's just the spirit and the son, the spirit's empowering, mm-hmm. commissioning, uh, accompanying, helping all those words with Jesus throughout his whole mission. And again, all of this is taking place so that it might take place for you and me. Mm-hmm. And that's what's, you know, the, the turn. And so when the father speaks the affection, um, that was the, that's the, that's the pinnacle of the word is, or of the, of the scene, because now in Christ, you know, fast forward to Golgotha when he's, um, when he's on the, or to Calvary, when he's on the cross and he now hears no affection. He does not. There's all of the um, wrath that you and I rightly deserve gets poured out on him so that we might never have that. So you and I right. can no longer look to the sky and hear silence and cold, but right. rather we all we hear is the affection of the Father. Right. And that can only happen because of what the Son did. Hmm. And that's the most stunning part about this passage. It's one thing, you know, verse 17, and this is the reason we chose this as one of the texts for Advent, the father's testimony about his son. Mm. This is my beloved son, or like you said, that emphatic, this one, that one is my own son um, with whom I am well pleased. It's not surprising to us that the father would feel that way about his son. Right. Um, in fact, you know, if you open that up and just consider in the parallel in Isaiah 42, the father delights in his son. He has always loved the son. The son has been with him forever. When Jesus prays in John 17, that high priestly prayer, um, he says to the father, I've been with you. He, yeah. he refers to 
having existed with the Father forever in glory and now wanting his disciples to enjoy that. So what's so shocking is not that the Father delights in the Son and is pleased with him and is present here, but that, what you said and how you sum that up in your main point, that because of Jesus, because mm-hmm. of his righteous life and sin-atoning death, we can enjoy yeah. that same affection of the Father. Yeah. I mean, to, to think of the Father saying that about us, this is my beloved son, daughter, I'm pleased mm-hmm. with you. That's stunning. Yeah. And you have that family imagery there of our older brother, Christ, yeah. has faced, you know, experienced both the full affection of the Father and the full wrath of the Father mm. so that his brothers and sisters, us, yeah. we wouldn't have to. And, and I think that was the big thing I, I took away yesterday and my soul just left encouraged mm. and warmed by... Mm. The Father has affection for me. And so the days where I often forget about him or don't give mine to him, um, I sin and um, fear him. I try to you know, creep around the rest of the day because mm. I'm worried about the Father's um, disappointment in me. But just to remember that the Father only shows us affection when we're united to Christ. Mm. So are you wondering, are you united to Christ? Trust him now. Yeah. Live in obedience now. Live by faith now. And you will experience the Father's affection. Yeah, the imagery of the Father being affectionate to His Son is one that we can, you know, is for the dad, for us that are dads of sons. You know, you can make that, you can see that, right? Um, and you know, people who are sons can look to their dads, and you know, it's an imagery that speaks to us. Mm-hmm. What's just mind-boggling about the whole thing is that, you know, it was the Father. So, you know, fast forward, if, if it's true that Jesus is the servant in Isaiah 42 and 45 or, and, and on, Isaiah 53, uh, 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief. My chosen one in whom I delight. Exactly. All those words and all the, so you, you sit there and you think, would I ever do that to my son? Mm. You know, like, mm. how, how could that be good? And yet he did it for us so that we might become sons of God. That, that just, that is the scandal of the gospel. Yeah. And, and that's what's on display here. And so that, mm-hmm. what that does to me and my soul is it humbles me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it makes me treasure Christ even more. It makes me more thankful for the Spirit more. It Amen. makes me wish and long for and appreciate the affection the Father has to me that I might not receive I'm no longer a child of wrath, but have been adopted. Now right. I am a, you know, a son of righteousness. And then it just also kind of, it informs the way I parent. It informs the way I view my children and informs the way that I love and respect and honor my parents. Um, it just has this, you know, you know the, the reality that is that relationship and then we're the analogy, we're the analog, we're yeah. the image of that. Yeah, we, if that's true, that. if that's true, then it has implications into how I do life right now. That's amazing. Yeah, there's there's a tendency, I think, for some people to think that um, kind of a, a universal sonship mm. where everybody is a child of God. Right. And, and you hear people talk that way. Oh, we're all uh, children of God, meaning just human beings are right. children of God. But you just referenced Ephesians 2 that exactly. says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Children uh, of we wrath. We were children of wrath. Right. Um, There's a family... outside of Christ... The familial allegiance to a different father. Yeah, yeah. And Jesus says in John 8 to the Jews, yeah. uh, Abraham is not your father. That's right. Your father is 
the devil. Right. He's been sinning from the beginning. <laughs> right. And uh, and he's a liar, just like you. You lie because you're his sons. Exactly. <laughs> so that's very offensive um, to that popular idea that everybody in the world is a is a child of God. We are all created by God, mm-hmm. but. Jesus, Christmas had to happen because mm. we were all by nature children of wrath. That's right. Um, Christmas had to happen so that Jesus could fulfill all righteousness and make it possible for children of wrath to become sons of God. Right. And and that's that's what we are now. So I, I think Mark, like you were saying, the the effect of this when we get to that. So what is the Holy Spirit saying to us, and how does this affect our hearts and our minds? Um, what is not affected in our lives? When we understand that the Father has put His affection on us, right. mm-hmm. His His love for us, yeah, um, it, it, how He loves us, it informs. Like I close with reading Romans eight, um, kind of what you were saying. This universal sonship. Well, it doesn't I had a somebody once told me when I, when I said that to them, they said, "Wait a minute." Romans eight says nothing can separate us from the love of God. Yeah, I said, "Keep going." Who are in Christ Jesus? So mm. the. Everything you just described of the um, really at, at pre-Christ, there is there are familial allegiances in different ways, and the people whose father is the devil, they do have a relationship with God, Romans one, but it's of judge and of mm-hmm. wrath. But the only way that we can be transferred, Colossians one, from one kingdom to the next, from one legally traded from this family to that family, is only in and through. Christ and through his death and resurrection. So it's passages like that. When you read them about the love of God, what can separate us from him, neither life nor death and on and on can be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Mm -hmm. our Lord. It just, it brings the weight of the person and work of Christ who, which is is exactly what we celebrate at Christmas. It's the coming of that kind of savior for us that unites us. And when in union with him now, we have access to the Father, and it's no longer a relationship of judgment and of wrath, yeah. but of love and affection. So the prodigal son story all of a sudden takes on new meaning. <laughs> Everything starts to take on new meaning, yeah. and it all, all the promises of God become yes and amen in Christ to us. Mm. Such good news. Yeah, Good to be reminded this time of year and meditate on this together. Mm-hmm. That uh, Mark, I like how you said that warms warms our hearts with mm-hmm. stirs stirs us with affection for the Father who has set His love on us. So mm-hmm. this is good. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Amen.